So we had big public companies asking us to come in-house at, you know, at, at their software teams and talk to them about what we were doing from a security perspective around software software security. Um, so those were the moments where like, uh, okay, this niche thing is actually going to be a really big, uh, really big need. Um, and, and I think we got excited about it, right? This is LA is Good For You, a podcast about the founders and funders who are building LA's most interesting companies. We are your hosts, Kevin and Suze. On this week's episode, we'll introduce you to Andrew Peterson, founder of Signal Sciences, a cybersecurity company based in Culver City. Andrew is one of the more technical founders that we had on our show. And you geek out at this kind of deep tech, Kevin. So what did you think? You know, I, I was really excited to see a cybersecurity expert on the schedule. I think it's something that we're going to hear a lot more about, especially as the election approaches. Uh, what The other thing that's really great about Andrew and his background is that he was at Google in the early days of AtWords and then at Etsy in the early days of that platform. So he shares all of his, his story as he worked on those problems at, at those companies. And he goes through both uh, investing in side projects and building his current company. It's a great episode. How did you meet Andrew? I got introduced to Andrew through another one of our guests, Grant from Replicated. I believe they're having some secret B2B dinners in Culver City. That sound like a lot of fun. Those are some really great guys. Yes, they are. Let's just introduce you to Andrew. Andrew grew up in Seattle. Here he is talking about his childhood. I kind of gravitated towards business super early on. I remember my grandparents were like, oh, are you going to be a doctor? And I was like, no. Like, <laughs> like you know, it's one of those things when you're a kid and you're, you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to be some type of thing that my grandparents or parents want me to be. And I was like very clearly like, nope, that's not for me. But like, I think I was seven or eight and I was reading like the stock like section of the newspaper because I just like seeing like sort of where like I would track companies and like how and I learned about dividends then and, and it's just kind of you know my parents are kind of watching this and like oh boy like we, we kind of know where this is trending towards right like some type of business activity um did you have like a lemonade stand in your own model portfolio? No, no, but I had like a budget when I grew up, um, right? So like instead of getting just an, allow an allowance, you know, a monthly allowance, like I had negotiated a budget with my parents of the things that like I would be responsible for paying for. And we tracked, like I had an Excel spreadsheet and I tracked it. <laughs> and like we went over it to be like, hey, like, I, you know, I think I should, we should add a little bit here because I kind of need, it was just, I, it's funny because it's one of those things when you're a kid, you don't know that it's weird, right? Like, and, and now I like tell stories like this to people and they're like, what the heck? Like, <laughs> like you, you were negotiating budgets with your parents and tracking them with an Excel spread. And it was like, yep. And like a lot of startup founders that I talked to, they're like, we didn't even track a budget for our company right now. And you were doing this when you were like 16. What I really liked was technology. So my, the, I actually started a business when I was in high school because I took a class on on networking when I was in in high school, so my, my high school actually had some pretty cool technology related classes that I was able to take. So, took those and then started literally a, kind of a small consulting business doing like connecting printers for people because nobody can figure out how to do that on their own, right? Like like uh, setting up home networks and stuff for folks. Um, and that was, I guess, my first foray into you know business and stuff on my own, but. So you were doing that at a high school, and then um, you went to Sanford, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, how did you choose the school? Um, so I, I was a, an athlete in school um, when I was in, in high school, and I, I always just kind of loved following athletics in general. So um, my, my um, 
Stanford has a sort of a rare mix. It has the best athletic um, program in the country and has for years at this point. Um, and I was a swimmer, and so they had the best swim team in the country also. So I was able to both swim and do academics, and it just seemed kind of idyllic. So you went on to work at Google. How did that experience prepare you to be an entrepreneur? <laughs> I So uh, in my small team... Um, of like you know 50 people um the ceo and founder of pinterest was on our team um uh ben silverman and um the like one of the premier uh, venture capitalists now his name tom tom tungus was on our team as well like i shared an office with him for a little bit um uh kim alone scott was our um was our director at the time and she wrote uh, radical candor um, which is kind of a really big book in the Valley also. And Cheryl Sandberg was kind of the the person that we ended up uh, rolling up to. So it's like you get access to these people that are just these crazy luminaries. And we were just kids, you know, like on, on a team just trying to figure out how to do online advertising for the first time. And so it's, um, you know, how it prepared me. Number one, it's an incredible network, right, um, of folks that I know. But two, like the, um, yeah, like the... There was a lot of parts about the business of the internet that weren't figured out yet, and we were actively trying to figure those out while we were there. So there was certainly this motion of going through the process of actually trying to figure out like wh what does a business look like on top of uh, you know on top of building this new thing around the internet. So that was one piece. Um, how it relates specifically to to the work that I'm doing now is um, you know it was it was. B2B sales, really. Um, there, there's different parts of Google, obviously. And I, so I worked in the, um, the AdSense part of Google, which was basically around um, providing advertising to website publishers um, to help them basically fund their, their growth of their business. Um, and so... Just, just curious, yeah, in, yeah. in terms of timeline, how, how long had AdSense been around at this point? Uh, not long. And, and it's actually funny because AdSense actually was originally a company that was uh, grown, born and raised in L.A., um, so just as it sort of relates back to the LA tech scene, um, and now, uh, the I I Ibaz brothers, I think, um, they're, they're the ones that kind of, that, that built that, that company down there. And so I actually have connected with them <laughs> subsequently while I came back here and said like, wow, these worlds sort of collide long-term, but, um, yeah, AdSense, I think it was like two years old at the time when I joined. Um, yeah, so it was pretty early on. So you were still trying to figure out some significant questions, right? It was, uh, they were doing some, they were, I remember they were doing, Google was doing a lot of business with AdSense right away, but they had much bigger plans. What were the problems you were working on? I mean, we didn't even know that changing formats of ads or, uh, you know, changing how you actually sort of displayed different advertising or how you did targeting would actually impact how often that users would be able to click on those things and basically how much uh, how much revenue then would subsequently be be able to um, be earned by publishers like it was so even just being like cool if you change the colors to match your site like that would actually have a uh, relatively large impact on on how click throughs were you know in, in, in hindsight and part of the reason why I ended up believing is that like you know I, Online advertising, you know, you're like, hey, you know, is my whole goal to get more people to, you know, click on, uh, unwittingly click on these ads to make people money? Like, yeah, that was kind of what the job was at the time. Um, and it wasn't terribly inspiring. Um, so it, it it was sort of the beginning of the end when I when I 
had gotten to the point where I feel like I was really sort of getting diminishing returns on my learning there um, and really just looking to find that next phase of growth for me to learn again. So what did you do next? So I, I moved to Africa. Um, I, I moved to Tanzania, uh, as, as one does, right? Um, moved to Tanzania. I worked, on, on, uh, worked with the Clinton Foundation on medical health information systems. And at the time, um, uh, my, my parents were thinking I was crazy, right? Like Google was the number one place to work and it was on everybody's list. And my parents were um, just telling me like, why, why you know, why would you be doing this to go work for a place where I, you know, I got a stipend. I didn't even really get, get paid, um, in the next phase. And my whole thing to them was like, Hey, I want to learn. Like I want to, I want to be putting myself constantly into, in a position where I'm like continuing to grow and learn. And I want to go work on stuff that's meaningful and, and things that are very important, important to me. And I feel like I'm like actually adding value to the world instead of adding more clicks to, um, to advertising. Um, again, not that there's anything wrong with that. It just wasn't the, you know, it wasn't the thing that was really driving me. Um, so, you know, my parents were kind of like, okay, well, um, and it's funny because the thing that I told them at the time is something that I tell a lot of other, you know, either younger people or just kind of people that are thinking about making transitions in their job is that if you did well in one job, you're always going to be able to go back. Like you can either go back to that company or the same people that, that you worked for there, you can work for in the future. And I've had multiple opportunities to be able to go back to both Google and to work with a ton of the other folks that I worked with there. I've offered jobs to those people that I used to work with and they kind of followed me in my career. So it's one thing that I tell a lot of people is just change is great. Like if you make change in your career, it doesn't close doors. It just opens future ones that, that you can go through. So Moving to Africa, work, working with the Clinton Foundation, fantastic uh, experience. Um, a, a lot, really, a lot to talk about there. But it was about it was about thirteen months. It was a um, uh, it was a fellowship program that I was there for, and uh, uh, yeah, a, a lot of learning experience, a lot of life experience, and a lot of learning experience as well. You went on to work at Etsy in New York after this. Um, what kind of problems were you trying to solve there? We, we worked on all sorts of things. Um, I was a third product manager hired, um, and there were a team of like 65 engineers. Uh, so I got to work, I mean, my first couple of years, I was actually just working on individual projects before I moved into a management role. But um, lots of community-based um, selling, right? It's kind of like what, what Etsy's known for is sort of social, social commerce um, stuff there. But I, I think one of the big learnings was, you know, how do you sort of connect this human experience with, uh, with purchasing? Um, and, and what, what can that really do to both a business, but then also the, just the experience of buying things in general? So a lot of the work and the, a lot of the sort of exploration product work that we were doing was based around that. Um, and I... <laughs> I was like so pleasantly surprised over and over and over again about the power of a network of um, of people where like the, the focus was like, hey, it's commerce, like you buy stuff all the time. But the focus was really about how do you connect people as well as um, as well as help people buy buy products at the same time. So did you start working on your company and the idea behind it on Signal Sciences while you were at Etsy? Yeah, so so Etsy was interesting from a technology perspective because they were doing things um, that are now called DevOps and cloud uh, before everybody even called them that. They were sort of like one of the pioneers in the in the um, the DevOps movement in the first place. 
And so what sort of happened there is that we ended up a lot of the sort of technology infrastructure pieces uh, that we were building out there was really a build not buy type of situation, right? Like we had to build a lot of stuff in house because we were doing things that were relatively extreme. So from a security perspective, um, the my, my sort of co-founders who I ended up meeting um, while I was at Etsy and we we overlapped in a lot of the um, a lot of project work um, while I was there in the first place. Uh, we were tasked with trying to um, basically having to come up with a new approach to how to do something that had been around for a long time in the past. So a lot of, you know, it wasn't that we started started to first build our, you know, a prototype of um, what became sort of signal sciences there, but it was really that we were just learning the lessons that really everybody else was going to have to learn in the future. And I think the moment that we got really excited about the business potential was. Um, was as we started giving talks externally about the, some of the things that we were kind of learning internally, um, we were like, oh, th this is, you know, when we first started working on this, we were like, hey, this only really applies to Etsy. It's, you know, we're the only ones doing things like DevOps. We're the only ones that are um, really sort of taking a, a very different approach to how to do product and software development in the first place. Then it started becoming, I mean, everybody else started to do it, right? Like it started to be other sort of startups first, and then you started seeing really large companies. So we had big public companies asking us to come in-house at, you know, at at their software teams and talk to them about what we were doing from a security perspective around software, software security. Um, so those were the moments where like, uh, okay, this niche thing is actually going to be a really big, uh, really big need. Um, and, and I think we got excited about it, right? Like, there's certainly a business potential that was going to be there in the first place because we knew other companies were going to need this. But our our peers in the industry were really kind of, they were suffering and really, um, you know, expressing to us that they really needed sort of similar type of technology that we were we were building and learning to build in-house at Etsy. And so I think sort of the need combined with the business opportunity was something that made it made it really excited for us, exciting for us. So how did you guys decide to leave Etsy and then establish your own company? I'm really, really curious about that. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, when I talk to other entrepreneurs that have um, kind of dreams of being able to start their own company, one of the things that I tell them is um, probably the hardest thing for us to be able to get off the ground is just getting all three of us to commit to starting a company together, right? Um, it's, I think it's, you know, it's one thing to have sort of one person go off and say, okay, I'm going to go start this thing and you know, you're kind of uh, you're lead, you're the you're the lone wolf sort of leading the way and trying to get other people to follow you. But it's there's a lot of things that are particularly hard about about that type of route. And and if you get the right team in place from the beginning, um, because regardless if you have co-founders or not, you're going to have to convince the second employee and the third employee and the fourth employee. And when you're trying to do that, I mean, you're it's it's a dream, right? You're like living on a living on a dream and trying to get people to to follow you. So for us to get all three of us to leave. Um, we left at different times, so it wasn't it wasn't something where it was like um, uh, I don't know as as sort of impactful to the to the business that we're leaving in. Um, and so I think I think the fact that we sort of staggered staggered when we left it made it much easier for the organization to be so happy for us to leave. And Etsy was fantastic when we left; they were just very supportive um, and really really wanted to see us succeed in the process, which you you, know, you don't always get depending on the depending on the company. So. I think that combined with the fact that we had a bunch of work experience like overlapping while we were actually there, we knew how we worked, we knew what kind of skills we brought to the table, and it made it really easy to sort of envision starting starting a company and really like investing a lot of our lives together um, in, in what became Signal Sciences. So there were three founders. Uh, you're the CEO. 
How did you guys choose? Did you just, you know, just... What, what, how did you decide who, who's going to lead the company? Yeah, so we, um, we got some good advice uh, early on. Uh, and I, I was just trying to learn as much as I could in the process. So I was reading a lot of books and talking to a lot of other founders in the process of starting the company. I ended up reading this book. Uh, it's called Founder's Dilemma. Um, and it's a book that I suggest to a lot of other entrepreneurs in the process. And so I started reading it and was like, oh, this is super helpful because it's it's so it's basically uh um you know it's a book about founding companies but it's talking a lot about the soft side of founding companies and using a lot of data behind um behind a you know a big data set of other uh startups to identify some issues that um that are important to figuring out how you start your own company and so I somehow convinced my other two founders to kind of do book club with me. And um, we would, we'd, we'd read this book, we'd read kind of a different chapter, and each chapter would kind of go into depth about a specific area of what you should be doing, right? Um, and how to think about starting the company. So, you know, one time it was, how do you decide how to split equity between the three of you to make it so that you don't resent each other and feel like it's, you know, it's a fair split of equity? Um, and, you know, so we went through that and we went through that process actually a couple of times to make sure that, that we were all sort of on the same page with how we were going to do that from the beginning. Um, the second one was really talking about, you know, what are the motivations for starting a company in the first place and making sure that we at least understood what each other's motivations were. Luckily, I think in our case, we had very similar ones. We wanted to grow. We wanted to grow a company. Right. So it was not to us. It was not about maintaining control. And so that clearly led us to being like, OK, we're going to go raise money and we're going to try to you know make this thing big. Because the moment you raise money, you're kind of on a specific path. Um, so anyway, there was sort of a bunch of different pieces there. And one of them was about titles, right, um, and what, what we each did. And I think the fact that we had had working experience together before made it a lot easier. But I think the biggest thing that I always tell folks is just be intentional about that, right? Like, don't, don't like, get into it and just say, hey, we're going to see where this goes. Like, you know, maybe it goes someplace and maybe it doesn't. But if you don't have those conversations early on, it really leads to, I think, some painful conversations potentially to have down the road, especially if it, you, you just got to make your intentions very clear, I think, with one another. So um, I think that's one of the, the things that has been a real strength for our company overall is uh, we communicate very well as a founding team. Um, and we're very supportive of one another. And, you know, it's deciding what roles you have is not just like, you know, a point in the sand at the beginning of the company. Like your company changes a lot over time. And so we continue to have that conversation. It wasn't just, you know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't just like, cool, let's have a company. Like what are we all going to do? Well, you need to have that, right? But then a year later, like, wow, we have 20 people in the company. You know, a year after that, you have 40 people in the company and you all have different roles over time. So... Yeah, it's a powerful thing to be able to continue to have that kind of conversation to make sure that everybody's supported and everybody's in the position where they're adding the most value that they can given their skills and their background. So you mentioned that you you went out to raise money. Mm. Do you remember what your original elevator pitch was back then for <laughs> what the company would become? <clears throat> so there's this uh, common saying that if you go and ask for, um, if you ask investors for advice, they'll give you money. If you ask them for money, they'll give you advice. Um, I didn't know that saying at the time, um, so I was sort of n n ignorance is bliss, I think. Um, but uh, so one, of the, this is interesting sort of backstory. One of the reasons why I found Etsy in the first place is that um, uh, one of the entrepreneurs that I've known in my past, his name is Michael Deering. Um, he, I, I knew him sort of before he became an investor. 
Um, and so I was reaching out to him. I was thinking about leaving uh, the Clinton Foundation, going to New York, and he suggested, hey, you know, go check out Etsy. Um, so he was sort of very instrumental in, in just introducing me to that company. Lo and behold, four years later, it turns out he actually is doing seed investing. I had no idea what seed investing even meant at the time, right? I was like, what is seed versus, like, you know, just completely naive to the world of investing. So I reached out to Michael and just said, hey, you know, thinking about starting a company, you're an investor. Can you teach me about how this stuff works? And he's like, sure, come in. So we had lunch and, um, you know, I was like, so literally like, you know, Little old naive Andrew sitting down and saying, hey, like, how, how does investing work? And he's like, well, let's just tell me what you're doing. Like, tell me what the company is. And so, you know, just had actually a long form just conversation. It wasn't really elevator pitch. It was about half an hour. And, um, you know, he was like, hey, this sounds really interesting. Like, it's it maybe something I'm interested in investing in. Um, uh, you know, basically, here's how it works, right? Like, I write you a check. Um I was like, okay, right? And he's like, well, okay, so go, go do these things first because we just, we hadn't incorporated and we hadn't, and he, he was, he was great. So it was, you know, that was the easiest part, really just kind of starting off there. And then as I talked to other founders, was just asking them, like, who are some great seed investors that you, that you love? Um, really only talked to like four investors at the time and had interests kind of across the board. Um, so that was it, like off to the races. Very, very like abnormal experience, by the way. Um, that I don't really tell other people to try to emulate because it's just almost impossible. I, most of the time, the conventional wisdom is you talk to as many investors as you possibly can because you're going to probably have to talk to 50 to get to get a couple people that are actually interested in the first place. And we just, I, I think it was a combination of sort of serendipity, but, um, you know, it helped a lot that I had known Michael for a long time because he had a lot of faith in sort of me and then the story about our team um, and our background to make it, probably pretty easy for him also to make the decision. So for people who don't know what Signal does, mm. what what does it do and, and who are some of your customers? Yeah, so um, I'm trying to think about that. So there's, you, you start learning this when you get into the B2B world and there's um, public customers that you can list because you like negotiate <laughs> these things in contracts and then there's private customers um, who are typically much bigger brands and much more exciting in some ways, but you can't, you can't list them out. So um, we have folks, uh, the customer list is from uh, folks like Under Armour and um, Datadog and Chef um, and other security companies. Actually, Duo Security uses us to protect their um, uh, their web applications. So, so what do we actually do? Um, what we do is, if you have a mobile site or you have a website um, or you have APIs or basically any sort of internet-facing service that you have, um, we, we sit as a protection point between um, the folks that are trying to access that data and then the data that's behind on, on the company's system um, to be able to identify when sort of fraudulent or bad behavior is happening there. Um, we'll, we'll, block, uh, we'll block that behavior proactively for them with sort of an automated uh, set of signals that we'll, that we'll block against. Um, but then we also give them visibility into where those attackers are even attempting to attack in the first place. Um, right. So it, it, if you imagine it's, um, you know, if you're sitting on the other side and you're trying to develop software, it's kind of important to actually know where people are trying to sort of uh, either hack that, attack that in the first place. And that's something that, you know, sort of before us has never really existed is that people haven't had that visibility um, at all, which is it's it was hard for us to sort of imagine in the first place. But again, as we started to do some some digging, you start to realize, OK, yeah, hey, this is 
you know, pe people should probably know where there might be potential problems in, in, in their software that they're developing. So do you um, hire any hackers then? Uh, we, I mean, our, my, my co-founder was a hacker. Of, uh, so there's something called, um, you do penetration testing, which you get paid to, you basically pay a service to come in and um, try to find vulnerabilities in your, in your company and in your, your company's um, software, hardware, like whatever. Um, so Zane Lackey, our, our chief security officer, uh, he did that for 10 years, um, uh, and it was literally every two weeks he was in a different company uh, trying to attack them. And so actually having his background has been incredibly important for us to be able to understand how to design a system to be able to stop, uh, you know, sort of his former self. Um, and then certainly having a bunch of experience at Etsy, being able to identify, um, you know, techniques that, that worked or, or techniques that didn't work. Um, yeah, it sort of put us in a position to do that. So, so do we have that now? Um, yes, uh, we continue to. Uh, he's still on the team. We still have a bunch of people that are that are actively trying to sort of break our system. Um, but the thing that that again, like, it's hard to understand if you're out outside of this world of security. The moment that you get installed on sort of any customer system, it doesn't matter how big a name brand they are. You could be a no-name brand or you can be a huge brand, and attackers are constantly trying to attack everything that's on the internet at all times, right? So it's not only that we have that in-house, but you, you sort of get, uh, I don't know, right? Like th these people are testing your system at all, at all times of day across the entire internet. So we, we're, we're installed across like 10,000 applications right now, um, and it's... I don't know, 150 billion production requests a week that that we're reviewing. Um, so there's there's a lot of signal. So you're a first time CEO. Mm. What have you learned so far? <laughs> the one thing I'll tell you the one the one secret of um, uh, so much. Um, one of the things that uh, that I was told very early on, and again, I try to talk to as many other CEOs or or just founders in the process of of doing this because. I, there's so many things that I don't know, and there's so many things that I've had to learn along the way. Two big areas: number one, um, uh, investing and investment area. Uh, that's that's one of the things that you might be a business manager in different large organizations, and you have you know a PNL and a big business unit, and you have to figure out budgeting and finance and um, a lot of planning and stuff for those things. Um, and those are really good skills to learn, sort of beforehand coming into um, coming into being kind of a founder or CEO. But the one thing that you don't ever have experience before you start a company is is funding the company and and figuring out how you actually sort of keep the keep the lights on and keep money in the bank. Um, and that that responsibility typically squarely falls onto the CEO specifically. So um, uh, there's a lot that I've learned around investing. Um, uh, probably the, the 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 one area that I tell people all the time is that if you think about investment beforehand, kind of getting into it, I thought it was you know this really analytical process where um, you know you have to fit you know your perfect story and these perfect numbers into this you know analysis engine that the investor has on the other side. Um, you guys are laughing because you may actually sort of know the punchline here, but um, you know, you know what investing comes down to a lot. It's people. It's it's really about um, you know how do you get people excited with a story about what you're doing and get them invested in that story. And the numbers are a component part of it, but there's so much. Um, it's almost like people game theory stuff, right? It's like. Well, what does Paul Graham say? Paul Graham says like there's two things that you should be trying to do when you're investing. You you need to make the investor either worried that they're going to, um, uh, well, there, there's two things that drive their behavior is basically what he says. He says one is they're really worried that they're going to invest in a flop, 
or they're worried that they're going to miss out on a whale. And, and that's really your sort of job when you're fundraising is getting people to feel like they're going to miss out on a massive opportunity for themselves. And there's lots of different ways that you can do that, partially with data and partially with just being able to tell a story or even run a process really well from an investment perspective. So that that's sort of one side. The other side that's just kind of more colloquial is that your job as, as, a, as a CEO is um, it's all sales, really. Like if you don't like sales, um, you should figure out who you can put around you to really take on that role because you're selling your story to your first employees, you're selling it to investors, you're selling it to your customers that you're trying to get, you're selling it to PR, you're selling, I mean, everything that you're doing really is sales. Um, and it's really about storytelling. So if you can, um, if you like sales, you like storytelling, then like it actually could be a really good position for you. So what advice would you give to any other startups that would like to either start in, in LA or, you know, move from, from New York, from San Francisco, from Austin? Um, do it. Uh, you know, if, 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 if there's interest in, in moving here in the first place, do it because there's absolutely a growing ecosystem that you can tap into. One of the things that I think is unique about here, especially compared to San Francisco um, and, and potentially even New York, just because New York is it's just kind of such a big city that like, the community here really wants to help each other, right? There, there is this there is this camaraderie here about growing uh, each other's businesses, growing the community overall. That um, almost every entrepreneur that I talk to here, especially that, that has had experience outside of this area, um, they get really excited about that. Um, and it's it's something that you you wouldn't necessarily expect if you just kind of have some associations with. Um, I think there's a lot of stereotypes about LA culture in general, um, but I don't think that most people think of like how communal it may be. And like that is something that's very unique, I think, about the tech industry that's here is that it's not like the entertainment industry. It's not cutthroat. You're not trying to, you know, get one step ahead of everybody else. Um, I find that much more to be up in the Bay Area, that it's just highly competitive. And here it's, um, yeah, people are trying to help each other. So A, like, completely move out here. It's super flexible to being able to get office spaces. Um, you know, if you, it, regardless of your budget, you can find different things for, um, yeah, for different types of office spaces. There's great talent here. People are great storytellers here. So if you want marketing talent, like it's a great place to be able to come and tell your story and build your brand. Um, and there's honestly, like, there's a huge, um, there's a huge, uh, what's it called? Um, there's just a great history of entrepreneurship in Southern California. Like if you look at demographics around just small business growth and small business ownership, I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but like I know that it's the highest I think in the country in terms of like per capita small businesses and getting off the ground. So there's a, there's like a, a great creative vibe to the community here. Um, and it's not just creativity for, you know, Art, art, artistic anything like you can get that but you can also really get creativity around building businesses that's our show for this week if you enjoyed it make sure to subscribe on itunes and while you're there add a review to let us know what you think you can also find us at laisgoodforyou.com see you next week